Welcome to this message from the teaching ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Orlando, Florida, under the leadership of Senior Pastor Mike Osborne. Good morning, everyone. Um, My name is Ashley Kirkman. I'm going to be reading our Bible passage today. And our Bible reading comes from Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 50. Okay, again, our reading is from Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 50. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought this field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls, When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of the Lord. Hi, everybody. My name is Mike. I'm the senior pastor here. It's good to see you this morning and be with you again. I wanted to mention, by the way, that we have with us this morning somebody that we all know and love. Those of you who are new, you don't realize what an impact she has had upon this church, but Evelyn Brogan is back with us today. Evelyn has not been well. Where are you sitting, Evelyn? I I don't see your chair. There it is. So we welcome you back, Evelyn. We love you. We thank you. It's good to see you. Let's uh, give give her a, a welcoming hand. We have been, uh, for the last few weeks in this summer, during our times together in God's Word, looking at a series that we've called Honest Answers for Honest Questions. And what we're doing is each week taking a a different question that has been either submitted to us by you, the congregation, or a question that we think you are asking, whether you've asked it or not. And this morning I want to tackle two of the most troubling questions that Christians are asked about our faith. And those two questions are, is there really a hell and does it last forever? Uh, For people in our culture today, hell is the place that must not be named. It's an offensive doctrine. Few people talk about hell and when they do, it's usually with a note of either sarcasm or contempt or skepticism. I think we as God's people often feel a sense of embarrassment when the subject of hell comes up in conversation. I remember a couple of years ago, I got together with some old high school friends of mine. And after it became known that I was a pastor, I'd become converted since I had been in high school. Um, one of them, after she asked me a few other questions about Christianity, she asked me, now you're not one of those Christians who believes in a fiery hell, are you? And I said, yes, I am. But it was with such unbelief and she was aghast, you know, that I would believe in hell. Nobody likes to think about hell. 
Frankly, I'd rather preach about something that's a lot more uplifting and a little bit more encouraging than hell. But if there really is a place, anything like the hell of the Bible, wouldn't it be the right thing to do to tell people about it? If there is a place that comes anywhere close to the hell described in the Bible, wouldn't it actually be the loving thing to do to warn people about it? So let me go ahead and show my cards. As I said a moment ago, I do believe in hell. I believe in it not because I understand everything about it, not because I could answer every question that might be asked about it, not because the Bible itself tells us everything we might like to know about it, but I believe in it because I'm compelled to believe in it by the Holy Scriptures. And because I'm your pastor and one of my jobs is to study the Scriptures and tell you what they say, we're going to talk about hell this morning. Not only so that you can take warning, but so that you can warn others also. The text that Ashley read for you is just but one of many scriptures that could have been chosen this morning as we looked together at the subject. But I chose it because in a very short space, it does teach us two very simple truths. And one of those is that there really is a hell. There really is a hell. Look at verses 49 and 50. 49 and 50 of our text says, this is how it will be at the end of the age. This is Jesus speaking. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them, the wicked that is, into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now in this chapter, Matthew 13, Jesus teaches us just as he taught the crowd that was gathered around him in the, presumably at the Sea of Galilee. He's teaching us today through the use of stories. And in Matthew 13, there are seven, if not eight different stories. Eight, if you include the one that is at the very end of the chapter. Eight different stories that Jesus uses to teach us things. There's the parable of the sower and the seed at the beginning of the chapter, the wheat and the tares, the mustard seed, the yeast. And then the three that we read about the hidden treasure, the pearl of great price, and this net full of fish in verses 47 through 50. Let's spend a few moments thinking about that story, the net that's full of fish. It's very similar to the one about the wheat and the weeds. Usually it's called the wheat and the tares, but people today, who knows what a tare is earlier in the chapter. It's very similar to that one. And it's also similar to the one in chapter 25 that's pretty well known where Jesus talks about the separation between the sheep and the goats. The same basic lesson is embedded in all three of these different stories. And in this story about the net full of fish, there basically are two groups of fish in the ocean, says Jesus. They're good fish and they're bad fish. They swim side by side in the sea But one day in the future, there will be a day of separation. A day of reckoning, if you will. A day of judgment. And on that day, the fishermen will go through, he says, and separate the good fish from the bad fish. He will collect the good fish in baskets and take them home. 
and he'll throw the bad fish away in the garbage. That's the story. Now the question is, who is Jesus talking about? Because it's obvious that Jesus is not talking about fish. He's talking about human beings. The good fish are followers of Jesus Christ. They are people who have been born again, who have turned from their sins, who have trusted Christ for their salvation. Those are the good fish. They are the righteous. That's the word Jesus uses. Not because they are inherently any better than the bad fish, but because they've had their sins washed away and the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. That's why they are righteous. The bad fish, on the other hand, are people who choose to live life on their own. People who choose to ignore Jesus Christ and to remain stuck in their sin. They are the wicked. That's the word Jesus uses. Not because they're inherently worse than anyone else in the world, but because they've rejected Jesus and they've spurned his offer of salvation. Therefore, they are not righteous. The righteousness of Christ has not been given to them. They are still wicked. Just like the righteous would be were it not for the work of Jesus Christ. And verse 50 of our text says that the final destination of that group of people, the bad fish, the wicked, is the fiery furnace. Whereas Jesus says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now this place that Jesus is referring to, this fiery furnace, goes by several different names in the Bible. You may have heard of some some of these. There is Hades, there is the abyss. In the book of Revelation, it's called the lake of fire. We usually call it hell. But in the New Testament, it most often goes by the name Gehenna. If you were to read in the original language of the book of Matthew here, you would see that that's the word that Jesus often uses for hell. Gehenna. What is Gehenna? Gehenna is referring to the Valley of Hinnom. It's a a geographical area over in the Holy Land, the Valley of Hinnom. It was a valley outside Jerusalem where hundreds of years before the time of Christ, idols were worshipped there by God's people and where even worse to think about, children were murdered. They were sacrificed to this pagan god called Molech. Their parents made them walk through fire. And in the process of doing so, they died, of course. That was the Valley of Hinnom, if you can imagine that. Fortunately, a good king by the name of Josiah came along a little bit later and destroyed that place and destroyed its use for idol worship and turned it into a trash dump for the city's garbage. So the Valley of Hinnom became a landfill. Human feces and trash and even the dead bodies of criminals were piled upon one another in the Valley of Hinnom. It was a disgusting place. It was an awful place. A place where the fires never went out and the maggots never died. That word Gehenna then became a synonym for hell. That's why Jesus compares hell to a fiery furnace. Because you can just imagine the fire on this landfill continually burning up the refuse of the city of Jerusalem. So hell is not, friends, not 
a figurative expression. It's not a figure of speech. It's not a state of mind, as you might sometimes hear people talk about hell. No, it's an actual place. It's the final destination of unrepentant sinners as well as the final destination of Satan and his demons. And the person in the Bible who speaks more than anybody else about hell is the most loving, the most caring, the most humble, the most gentle person who has ever lived. Jesus Christ. It's true. He speaks more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. 13% of his teaching, someone has estimated, had to do with hell. Half of his parables and stories had to do with punishment and judgment and hell. Jesus was very upfront about this topic. So let me tell you five things that Jesus said about hell. There are more, but these five, I think, are the most pertinent. Number one, five things about hell from the lips of Jesus. First thing he said is that hell is a place of separation from the gracious presence of God. For example, earlier in this chapter, when Jesus is explaining the parable of the wheat and the tares, you ought to go back and read that later today. In verse 41, he says that the Son of Man will come and send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be, here's that phrase again, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. You see, there are only two options, says Jesus. You are either wheat or weed. You are either, as we saw in the other parable, a good fish or a bad. You are either saved or lost. You will either be welcomed into the kingdom of God or weeded out. You will either shine like the sun in the kingdom of your Father or you will go to the fiery furnace. You will either be with Christ forever or separated from Him and His love forever. Second thing that Jesus taught about hell, it's that it's a place of utter darkness and gloom. Utter darkness and gloom. Three times in the book of Matthew, Jesus says that those who reject Him will be thrown outside into the darkness. What a horrible figure. Those who reject Him will be thrown outside into the darkness. Number three, Jesus said it's a place of conscious Extreme sorrow and regret. One of the phrases that Jesus uses again and again to drive that point home is found here in our text this morning in verse 50. He says that there will be in hell weeping and gnashing of teeth. As I think about that phrase, I'm imagining that Jesus uses it to express a kind of regret or hopelessness that we can't imagine. It's mixed with anger as well as self-contempt. All of those emotions wrapped up in weeping and gnashing of teeth. Number four, what did Jesus teach us? He taught us that it's a place of fire. 
As we've seen in our text today, he calls it a fiery furnace. Elsewhere, Jesus speaks of eternal fire or the fire of hell. In Revelation 14, we find out that hell is a place of burning sulfur. In Revelation 20, it's called the lake of fire. And there are many other references to fire in the New Testament related to hell. Now, I know this presents us with something of a problem because I said earlier it's a place of utter darkness and now we're saying Jesus talks about it being a place of of fire. How can it be both at the same time? Well, the answer is that we're dealing in these things with some highly figurative language. Jesus is telling it. Look, Jesus is telling you about a place you've never been before, about a place that is that possesses an infinite degree of agony and he's using the language that you and I can relate to but the point that Jesus makes when he talks about it being a place of fire is that hell is both physically and psychologically horrible just as fire is painful and intense so is hell in whatever ways it is painful and intense Number five, the last thing I want to mention that Jesus talked about hell is that he said that it lasts forever. It lasts forever. It's a place of eternal punishment. Let me show you some verses on this because this is an important part of the the biblical narrative about hell. And you and I are going to be challenged about this one probably more than anything else. Uh, Several verses, for example, in Matthew 18, it says, It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. uh, Mark 9.43, a very similar verse, says, It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. Matthew 25, this is the story of the sheep and the goats. This is an interesting one. It says that the Lord will say, and this is Jesus speaking, the Lord will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then a little bit later, he says they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Notice that eternal, the word eternal is the same Greek word, and it's applied both to the saved who will be in heaven forever, as well as to the lost who will be in hell forever. If hell is not eternal, then neither is heaven. They stand or fall together. Hell lasts forever, just as heaven lasts forever. And then finally, in Mark chapter 9, Jesus quotes from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 66, and he says that in hell the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Again, a very graphic way of talking about the everlasting nature of hell. Now, a number of evangelical scholars and theologians have departed from the traditional view of hell being forever, and they believe in something called annihilationism. You may have read or heard about that. Annihilationism is the theory that at some point unbelievers simply cease to exist. Their bodies and souls simply dissolve. It might happen the moment they die. Some say that. It might happen on judgment day. Other scholars say that. 
or it might happen after they have suffered a little while in hell. But eventually, according to the annihilationist theory, the souls and the bodies of people in hell are fully and finally destroyed at some point. Now, there are several problems with that theory. I don't have time to go into all of them, but not the least problem is that if annihilationism is true, then Jesus was lying to us when he said that hell is eternal. And not only that, but if people who go to hell are annihilated, then think about it. There is more than one way to be saved from God's wrath. One way is through the blood of Jesus, through faith in Christ. And the other way is simply to do nothing. If you will simply do nothing and not accept Christ into your life, if you'll just get through judgment day, maybe a little short while in hell, eventually your suffering will come to an end and you'll cease to exist. Friends, it's not true. Annihilationism is not true. If you'd like to study that out further, I would recommend to you a book by Robert Peterson called Hell on Trial, The Case for Eternal Punishment. Hell on Trial. You can read about that there. But some people who are annihilationists, I think, are missing the clear teaching of Scripture. Some people today are also called universalists because they believe that eventually everybody gets to heaven. This view was popularized a couple years ago by Rob Bell in his book, Love Wins. That is not true. Some people believe in reincarnation. You know what that is. You get to live again, again, and again. Some people who are out of a Roman Catholic tradition believe in purgatory. But I assure you that all of these are man-made ways of getting around the plain truth of Scripture that says there are but two destinations and hell is a real place that lasts forever. Now, I can imagine if I get inside some of your minds this morning, you're thinking to yourselves, wow, I, I don't know if I like this God. I'm not sure I like this God very much. Um, my God is much more of a God of love than what Mike is describing. I don't believe in a God who would send people to hell. Well, let me say two things about that. Two things about that objection. First of all, you don't get to pick your God. You don't get to pick your God. God is who He is. You must embrace God on His terms or not at all. You cannot play favorites with His attributes. You can't say, I like God's love. I don't think I like His justice and His holiness. God is who He is. In fact, you might be surprised to know that the Bible says a lot more about God's holiness than it does about His love. The wrath of God is mentioned in the Bible 600 times or so. And if you don't believe in a God of holiness and a God of justice and of wrath, guess what? You won't understand the love of God. God loves the human race so much, you see, that he sent Jesus to die on the cross to be our substitute, to receive the wrath of God in our place so that we would be delivered from it. The love of God shines forth so brightly through His holiness and His justice because God has provided a way. I will mention this later. God has made it possible for you to be sure that you will never go to hell because He loves you. The door to heaven is standing wide open and Jesus is standing there beckoning to you, ready to receive you with joy. So the first thing I want you to understand is don't, 
Don't try to choose your God. Receive him on his own terms. That is the only way to receive him. But the second thing I want to say to anybody here who is struggling with this and doesn't see the love of God in this doctrine, I want you to know that in a very real sense, God really doesn't send anyone to hell. You must understand that the people who are in hell are there because they freely choose to be. I know very well for a fact that before God stepped into my life and made me new back in 1975, I was freely on my way to hell because I wanted to do the things that I did. And if God hadn't saved me, I know that I would deserve to be punished there. C.S. Lewis is known for saying at one time that there are only two kinds of people. There are only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who say, thy will be done. Or those to whom God says to them in the end, thy will be done. No one is in hell who does not want to be there. And I will say to you the very good news that no one will go to hell who really and truly wants to know Jesus Christ. You say, but why must a person pay eternally for sin? Why is this the fact that a person must die in hell and be punished in hell forever and ever? Is sin really all that bad? And the answer of the Bible is yes, it is really that bad. If it merits eternal punishment, it must be that bad. Sin is, you see, an attack against God the one who made you, the one who breathed life into you, the one who makes every heartbeat of your heart happen, the one who surrounds you with blessings each and every day, and the one who killed his own son in order that you might be set free and forgiven. Sin is an attack upon that infinitely loving, gracious God. If there's one thing the existence of hell proves, you see, it's the exceeding sinfulness of sin. When we sin, we offend the king who has every right to lay down the terms of our relationship to him. And the punishment must fit the crime. Well, I said that Matthew 13 teaches two things. One is that hell is a real place. And many people go there. But the second thing that I want you to see from the Bible this morning is that you don't have to be one of them. You don't have to be one of them. Your friend does not have to be one of them. Your parents don't have to be ones of them. Your children don't have to go to hell. Your neighbors, the Dagomba people of Ghana that we prayed for earlier today, do not have to go to hell if they will but do one thing, repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verses 44 through 46, you have these other two very short parables that Jesus gives us. Verse 44, he says that the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. And then his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. I ask you, what is that treasure? 
In verse 45, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. I ask you, what is that pearl of great price? The treasure that is worth all that you can give away, the pearl of greatest value in all of the universe is Jesus Christ. He is that king who is worth everything that you possibly can imagine. He's worth far more than anything the world has to offer. He's worth giving away everything in order to have. In the Apostles' Creed, which we're going to be reading uh, together in a little while before the Lord's Supper, we speak of Jesus descending into hell. That's what he did on the cross. He descended into hell and experienced separation from his loving Father for you, for me. He absorbed in his own body your sin. He took upon himself your guilt and your misery and died the death that you and I deserve so that you might live the life you don't deserve. Jesus Christ is that treasure and he is that pearl. Follow him and you'll never have to dread hell. Listen, if anything I've said today about hell is true, You have the most critical decision before you that you've ever had to make or ever will make if you've never made it before. Are you willing to bet your eternity on the chance that hell is really not a place that exists? Are you willing to wait until the moment that you take your final breath to find out if hell exists? Are you willing to keep procrastinating about Jesus Christ on the gamble that God's not going to call your number before you've made peace with him? The stakes are that high. Depending on what you do with Jesus, you have eternal life to either lose or gain. Those are your two options. Heaven or hell. There is no door number three. And if this stuff about hell is true, I want to speak to us now as a church family. Those words back there on the wall have never meant more to us than this moment. We're here in this place to go and make disciples of all nations. Can you possibly ignore the plight of your neighbors, of your work associates, people you go to school with, people throughout the world and other nations, can we as a church family possibly ignore their plight once we understand their destination if they die without Jesus Christ? So what will you do? What will you give away? How will you serve? To whom will you speak? Because of what we've learned from God's word this morning. It demands a response. We cannot be uncommitted once we understand the truth about heaven or hell. We have the treasure that they need out there. We've discovered the pearl of greatest price. Let's give it away. Let's give it away. Nora Ephron is uh, one of my my, uh, favorite screenwriter, directors. You probably know many of her films. When Harry Met Sally, Sleepless in Seattle, You've Got Mail, Julie and Julia. She died this past week of leukemia-related pneumonia. And shortly before her death, Nora Ephron said this, you get to a certain point in life where you have to realistically understand that the days are getting shorter and you can't put off thinking that you'll get to them someday. If you really want to do them, you better do them. There are simply too many people getting sick and sooner or later 
you will. She's right. And Nora Ephron entered eternity a few days ago. So will you. So will I. Where will you be? Let's pray. Lord, I wince at these words because they are they carry so much weight. And Father, I ask for myself and my friends here at UPC that we will not play games, not waste time, not play around with the truth that we have been given by you. Lord, it's a weighty truth. It's a weighty matter, heaven or hell. Lord, I ask that you will burn into my life and into the lives of my friends here with greater reality and greater weight than ever before the truth that there is a place known as the fiery furnace to which many people, people we live around, people we know, people we work with, will go one day. And Lord, I pray that if there be anybody here who is unsure of whether he or she is a Christian or whether he or she is bound for heaven or hell, I pray that, Lord, today you will be with that person. Help him, help her read and study the Bible. Help them go to Jesus. Help them hand off their questions to you and embrace you on your terms. And we ask you now, Father, as we prepare for communion, that we will draw near to Jesus, the one who did go to the cross for us, the one who did experience your wrath for us. How thankful we are for you, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you descended into hell. Prepare us, we pray, for this meal. Take these elements and, Father, Bless them, use them as means of grace and means of growth in our lives that we might truly commune with you and commune with one another and leave here today as changed people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We at University Presbyterian Church thank you for listening to this message. Our mission is to help people know God, grow together, and serve others. To learn more about the church or how to have a vital relationship with God, visit our website at www.upc-orlando.com or call our offices at 407-384-3300.